to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Right. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. The dynasty is over. The dynasty is done. The dynasty known as the New England Patriots. The dynasty that we know of the New England Patriots from 2001 through 2019. It is over. NFL wildcard weekend for the first time in a decade. Brady and the Patriots won't advance to the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. They lost, speaking of the Patriots, they lost to the Tennessee Titans 20-13. Remember the Titans? These Titans. Derrick Henry rushed for 182 yards and a touchdown on 34 carries. Man, what's up with Ryan Tannehill, man? Is he Tom Brady's kryptonite or something like that? Tannehill now has five victories over Tom Brady, second only to Peyton Manning, six for the most by an opposing QB since 2001, and that includes the playoffs. And in this situation, he did absolutely nothing against New England, speaking of Tannehill. He was 8 for 15, 72 yards with a touchdown and one interception. His passing yards were the fewest for a starter since the Ravens' Joe Flacco had 34 in a wildcard game against the Patriots 10 years ago, a game in which, yes, the Baltimore Ravens won. So, I was watching this game, and I was just thinking to myself, especially in the second half, I would just say, you, you know what? I don't think New England is going to win this game. How many times in a tight situation like this, playing against a Tennessee Titans team or any type of team that could be the sixth seed or any type of team playing the New England Patriots in a playoff game when the, play, when the uh, uh, game is at home, and you're sitting up there in the second half of a tight game and you're saying that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are not going to get this victory, that the New England Patriots are not going to win this game. I just I just was never sitting there going, okay, by the way things are going, Brady's going to be able to pull this out. For the first time in I don't know how long, that was the truth. When they had the ball, they had a situation where they had the chance to win the football game in the Super Bowl against Philadelphia. I said, uh-oh, Philadelphia's in trouble, and I was wrong. There was a couple of other instances where I was proven wrong, where Tom Brady had the ball. They had an opportunity to win the game. The game was there for the taking, and they didn't get it done, and I was shocked. I was genuinely shocked and surprised. This game, I never got the feeling that Tom Brady was ever going to lead this team back. After halftime. And the game started off well for both teams, really. When you think about it, the game's first three possessions were all scoring drive. New England took the ball, 29-yard screen to James White. They set up Dick Fultz, 36-yard field goal attempt to make it 3-0 New England. All right, there you go. Now we're talking about it. Now we were thinking about, okay, the game that we saw New England play against Buffalo, the game that they won 24-17, we were like, okay, you were like, okay. I was like, okay, that's the New England team that's going to be coming up and playing today. But guess what? Tennessee turned around and answered with a 75-yard drive. Derrick Henry was the man on the drive, and Tannehill threw a TD pass to uh, the tight end, making it 7-3. But then 
New England came back and answered with a 75-yard drive of their own. Julian Edelman scored on a five-yard rushing play to give New England a 10-7 lead. And you just thought to yourself, okay, this is going to be the type of game. I'm not talking about in the second half where my thoughts and feelings turned to New England's not going to win this football game. But when I was watching the first quarter moving on even into the second, I was just saying to myself, this is the type of game that even though it was 10-7, that the way New England's playing football, I'm going to be comparing their offensive uh, production and their offensive consistency in this game to what they showed in the regular season against the Buffalo Bills the last time that they put in a really good or at least a pretty good offensive game. But the turning point, as you know, of the game came near the end of the first half. The Patriots drove the ball 47 yard line or set more 47 yards. They drove it down to the Tennessee one-yard line. You're like, okay, they're going to punch this thing in, and they're going to be going ahead and taking a 17-7 to lead, and everything is going to be right in Patriot land, right? Well, they ran the ball, speaking of New England, they ran the ball three times, didn't score a touchdown. They had to settle for a 21-yard field goal. So instead of New England leading 17-7, to the lead was only 13-7. to And I was just, again, thinking to myself, New England was at the one-yard line with Tom Brady as the quarterback. Yeah, I know he's 42 years old. Yeah, I know offensively that this wasn't vintage Brady. Yes, I understand all these things, but the Patriots at home in a playoff game at the one-yard line, first and goal, they run the ball three times and they don't score a touchdown. It was only the 13th time in Patriots history, or at least when uh, during the Brady era, that the Patriots had first and goal at the one in the playoff game. And this was the first time that they failed to get a TD drive, TD score on the drive. So, again, 13 times the Patriots had first down and goal at the one-yard line. 12 previous times they scored. Of course they're going to score. Guess who's the quarterback? This time they had to settle for a field goal. So, again, instead of it being 17-7 New England, it was 13-7 New England. Then Tennessee got the ball, went on a seven-play, 75-yard TD drive in a minute and 41, had 47 seconds left on the clock. So, they went in leading 14-13, got the ball for the second half. Derrick Henry accounted for all the yardage on the drive, and that was the end of the season, basically, for the New England Patriots. Man, that was something else, wasn't it? Shocking, surprising. Look, we all kind of figured. I know you figured. I was figuring that even if the Patriots were, were going to get by Tennessee, and I said that the Patriots were going to get by Tennessee, that when they go and play Kansas City, that this was going to be the end of their, se their season. The season ended for them in Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium, not at home at Gillette Stadium. But I was just still surprised. And it, again, it was almost like watching the highlights and watching the discussions and watching the shows and everything. It was like an end of an era, an end of like something that has been part of my life for almost two decades now had finally come to an end. The Patriots dynasty, the Patriots domination. Say what you want about, you know, the Patriots can go ahead and Bill Belichick can retool and Tom Brady can come back and all they need to do is get themselves a couple of wide receivers who can play and get themselves a couple of more options on the offensive side of the ball. And the defense is still going to be great. So the Patriots are still going to be the Patriots. They did finish 12-4 and 4 
in the regular season. You can run down all of these facts. You can run down all these hypotheses about how the Patriots can still come back and be the team that we all know and love and loathe and hate and admire and be jealous of and all those things from the dynasty that they had where they produced six Super Bowl championships, nine Super Bowl appearances, and all those other things. You can you can bring up all of these others, what ifs, and this is what they need to do. I'm telling you, the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady-led New England Patriots that we knew for the past 19 years, their dominance, their aura of almost invincibility, that's done, man. The Patriots, even in the wildest of optimistic dreams, can get together for maybe one more glorious run with a 43-year-old Tom Brady and a uh, rejuvenated Bill Belichick as a coach. But the sustained excellence that we've seen from the Patriots over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that's done, man. That is over. And in saying that, that's basically the end of a dynasty. That's basically something that you can almost count on every fall. If you're one of these people like me who watch football every single Sunday, who it's a religion that you need to be watching football every single Sunday. For the past two fucking decades, the Patriots have been the constant. The Patriots have been the, the, the yardstick for other teams to be measured by the Patriots' dominance, the win streak, the deflate gate, the, the, the league has almost been engulfed with what's been going on with the New England Patriots, even more so than the Dallas Cowboys and Jerry Jones. New England, Tom Brady, that has been the center of what's been happening in the NFL for two flipping decades. That team is done. That team is down and gone. And that team was buried six feet underground, pour concrete on the top of it. Sunday night or Saturday night or whenever they played at Gillette Stadium when they lost to the uh, Tennessee Titans. So it was just really, really not, maybe, again, just shocking because it's almost like, you know, now it's time for us to turn attention. It's, it's, a, it's a turning point, not just for me and not just for you and not just for everybody who watches football, but for in the NFL. Guess what? Now there's situations where we're going to have to start learning some new names. We're going to have to start learning some new teams. We're going to have to start learning some new definitions for what the dynasty is, is all about. Because 20 plus years or 20 years of what the New England Patriots have done, I don't care who's the quarterback and who's the coach of these franchises moving forward who are young and who are hungry and who have the potential and who have the talent to maybe be the quote unquote team of the new millennium, team of the next decade. From 2020 to 2030, we're not going to see a run like the New England Patriots. We're, from 2020, shit, to 2040, we're not going to see a run like the New England Patriots. Not even close. So when we start speaking about what's the team, who's going to be the team of the decade, whether it's going to be the Kansas City Chiefs with Pat Mahomes or whether it's going to be the Baltimore Ravens with Lamar Jackson, whether it's going to be the, I don't know, shit, the um, if he can ever keep himself injury-free, the Doug Peterson-led Philadelphia Eagles, whoever that team is going to be, who's going to win multiple championships, who's going to have that quarterback that's going to define the era. Whatever that team, whoever that team and that player is, the definition of greatness, the definition of all-time greatness and dynasties and all that kind of stuff, it's never going to come close. It's never going to approach what the Patriots did from 2001 now to the to the present of 2019 so it's like man 
a whole new day. A whole new day and era is over and something new and fresh and interesting and we don't know what the hell is going to happen. It's going to be coming around the bend and now it's here. Now it's here. And I'll be interested to see who's going to take that mantle, who's going to take that yardstick, who's going to take that torch and move on from the dynasty that has now been basically shut, locked, thrown away, and buried, considering the New England Patriots of 2001 to 2019. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. I mean, New England, they started the season great, right? After winning their first eight games, you were sitting there saying, yeah, the competition was inferior, but it was almost like, look, Brady's going to get this thing turned around. They got a great defense. Belichick is Belichick. Everything will be great. Everything will be fine. But again, after winning their first eight games, they lost four games. They lost to the Titans. They lost three times at home. They lost to the Baltimore Ravens. And even during those games, even during that tailspin, I was still one of those guys. I was still one of those human beings that was sitting up there saying, hey, don't worry about it, man. You know, the regular season and the playoffs are two totally different animals. And you're speaking about someone like the Baltimore Ravens who are 14-2. and two. And this is the time when the Patriots were still the number two seed. And the, the, the talk was, hey, you know what? Let's take a look at some of the contenders. Let's take a look at some of the teams that are going to be in the playoffs. Let's take a look at the Baltimore Ravens, who at that time was winning 10, 9, 8 games in a row. Let's take a look at the Kansas City Chiefs, who were rallying back in the championship forum with Patrick Mahomes coming off that knee injury and starting to play close to his MVP season from a year ago. Let's talk about a team like the Houston Texans, who put all their chips on the table for this season with their trades and with their acquisition of Laramie Tunsil from the offensive line to protect Deshaun Watson. Let's take a look at that team. Let's take a look at an emerging team like the Tennessee Titans. Let's take a look at those type of teams and let's kind of, let's kind of get them in the line. Let's kind of lead them up and take a look in their competition, comparing them to the New England Patriots. You take a look at the combination of Belichick and um, Belichick and Tom Brady. You take a look and you say, could you see a scenario? At the number two seed, that in a game, in an AFC championship game, being played at Baltimore, being played in Baltimore, that you have a 22-year-old guy, a Lamar Jackson, first time in an AFC championship game, same thing, kind of similar to what happened in last year's uh, AFC championship game when you had the unbelievable Patrick Mahomes and one of the greatest offensive seasons from a quarterback in NFL history. But yet and still, this is the AFC Championship, a whole different animal. And you had Tom Brady and you had Bill Belichick and you had the New England Patriots who had been in that situation and those type of situations over and over and over again who are experienced. Can you imagine for the 2020 AFC Championship game between the New England Patriots and the Baltimore Ravens that, yeah, Baltimore was awesome during the regular season. Yeah, Lamar Jackson was awesome in the regular season. Yeah, Baltimore beat New England in Baltimore during the regular season. But couldn't you see the scenario of where it's an AFC championship game, the game is close, the New England Patriots defense do what they need to do to not stop, 
but contain Lamar Jackson and then Tom Brady if he becomes Tom Brady. As I mentioned before, time and time again, that Brady didn't need to be Tom Brady from 2009, 2014, 2016. That Tom Brady in a game against the Baltimore Ravens in a tight game for the AFC Championship in the fourth quarter of a tight game, he could be needed to be Tom Brady, vintage Tom Brady for just one drive, for just one third and eight, for just one quarter. Couldn't you see Tom Brady doing that before this game that they lost in the wild card game to the Tennessee Titans? Couldn't you see that? I could. So even though the Patriots were losing and even at the end of the season where they lost to the Miami Dolphins, I always thought that there could have been a scenario where they could just reach down one more time, do like the 1969 Boston Celtics did in the NBA playoffs where they finished 48 and 34 in the regular season and they had to go on the road to play the Knicks and they had to go on the road to win the championship. And then in the finals, they met the Los Angeles Lakers of Jerry West and Elgin Baylor and Wilt Chamberlain and Butch Van Brennikoff as their coach. And Lakers were highly favored, but yet the championship medal of a player, of an all-time great player like Bill Russell, who was then the player coach, found a way to finally, to uh, excuse me, to win that championship. And Bill Russell went into the sunset, winning his 11th championship in 13 years. The similarities was, were there, I thought, for the New England Patriots to do the same thing. An old champion, an old guard, near the end of the line, still reaching down one more time to win that championship. And seeing though that that scenario would be more applicable for what they did last season in the 2019 playoffs than for this 2020 playoff season because they are done. They are out. Speaking of the New England Patriots, Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. My name is Wendell Wallace. Hello. How you doing? So glad that you could be with me. So let me ask you, man, what does this mean for this franchise moving forward i'm speaking about the patriots and yeah i'm concentrating concentrating mainly on the patriots because as i mentioned before this is this is it man we're not going to be revisiting the new england patriots as they were as you know them ever again so this is something that i want to i want to talk to you about because i'm interested to find out where they're going this is the first time what in bill belichick's career Maybe, possibly, I mean, you know, as far as the head coach is concerned, I mean, he didn't have the situation when he was the head coach of Cleveland. Now we have Belichick now regarded as one of the greatest, if not the greatest head coach in NFL history, 67 years old. What does this mean, man? Where do the Patriots go now? I mean, look, from 2001 to 2019, an 80% winning percentage, 232 and 58. They won six Super Bowls, nine Super Bowl playoff, uh, Super Bowl appearances. They won their division 17 times, man. They won in 11 straight seasons. The, the two seasons that they missed the playoffs, one was in 2008 with an 11-5 record. Oh, that's the year that Tom Brady got hurt against Kansas City in the opening game of the season. And then Matt, don't call me Sam Castle, Cassell or whoever that guy is came in and led them to that record. And then they also missed in 2002 when they suffered that Super Bowl hangover from winning the whole damn thing in 2001 when Tom Brady was still developing into the unbelievable quarterback that we all know he is right now. So my question is going to be, let's not even just concentrate or center on the 2020 regular season for the NFL, for the New England Patriots. Let's, Let's go even farther. Let's expand a little bit more. 
Who's going to be the coach for the New England Patriots in 2023-2024? Who's going to be the coach of the team? Who's going to be playing quarterback in the next five seasons? How much longer does Bill Belichick have? As I mentioned before, he's 67 years old. Same thing with Greg Popovich. Is Belichick going to be entering the Popovich stage of his career where it was kind of like, okay, I had that team. Popovich was San Antonio with Duncan and the first incarnation of the championship with the Spurs where he had Duncan and Robinson and Avery Johnson and Jaron Jackson from Georgetown University and Sean Elliott and Malik Rose and those guys. And then they transitioned for their next uh, batch of championships with such guys as Tony Parker and Mono Ginobili and Bruce Bowen and Duncan as the leader. And then the last championship that they had with an emerging star known as Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi? Kawhi Leonard. But when Kawhi left, you see what the San Antonio Spurs are right now. And you see that they're not in a position to win a championship. And with Popovich at his age, at his age right now, he doesn't have another seven or eight or nine years. I mean, the way that he's coaching, maybe he does. But the way he loves coaching, maybe he does. But the bottom line is that Popovich is now in the point of his career where it's not about winning championships because he just doesn't have the talent. He just doesn't have the team to win championships. So to compare, to compare that with the other great coach uh, of our generation, Bill Belichick, he is going to be, I think, entering the next couple of seasons where it's kind of like, you know what? I'm not going to be guaranteed to win 14 games or 13 games or 12 games. I'm not guaranteed that I'm going to be winning uh, the AFC East anymore. I'm not guaranteed that anymore. So how much longer will Bill Belichick have the coach when he's 67 years old or Fast forward it to maybe when he's coaching when he's 68, 69, 70, and the Patriots are going 9-7 and seven, or they're going 10-6 and six, or they're missing the playoffs or, God forbid, they go 8-8 eight and 7-9. Eight and, and nine. I mean, Bill Belichick is awesome. Bill Belichick is great, but he'll tell you, man, you need talent. I don't give a damn who you are. Vince Lombardi, George Hallis, Paul Brown, none of those guys won anything without talent. None of those guys won anything without superstars. You can ask any coach in any profession at any level, you don't win championships without talented players. And when you take a look at Bill Belichick, who could be looking to replace a quarterback who can go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest quarterback who ever lived, what do you do now? How long does this build last? Now in the NFL, where everything is centered around parity, it could be quicker than, say, a league such as the NHL or a league like Major League Baseball or a league such as the NBA. It could be a little bit quicker to uh, to uh, get to a Super Bowl because of the parody. But, you know, he needs 43 wins to tie Don Shula for the most all-time by a head coach. He's 20 wins away, speaking of Belichick, from being the number two all-time coach in wins. That's moniker is owned by George Hallis. So I'm thinking to myself, I mean, let's just be the most optimistic. Let's just say the class is not even half full. Let's say the glass is three quarters full. So we're speaking about Belichick needing 43 wins to tie Don Shula. Let's just say that he averages 10, 11 wins for the next couple of years. So he can catch Shula by the 2024 season, don't you think? And if he wants to stick around using that formulaic uh, equation of how many victories he needs each season to catch one of these all-time legends by 2021, not next season, but the season after that, somewhere during that season that he could get to the number of wins by George Hallis. But what is his, what is Belichick's motivation? Is it the love of the game? 
Still, is it the love of football, coaching football, being a part of football, everything that's centered around football? Is it mainly just sticking around so we can get to these records? Does he even care? Is he going to be like Barry Sanders and be like, you know what? Yeah, I'm four or five victories away, but guess what? I'm 72 years old, and I really don't feel like doing this shit no more. And I'm really getting tired of the owner and all this other stuff. I just want to get on my boat and go on Cape Cod and just relax and do some other things. So what is his, what is his motivation going to be moving forward? Maybe the situation of, hey, you know what? I get to bring in another quarterback. I get to develop another quarterback. I have an idea, maybe, and I'm going to throw this out to you a little bit later on in the podcast while speaking about the Patriots, that there might be a scenario where Belichick could be, uh, the Belichick could be enthused to stay coaching for a little bit longer. There, there could be a project that there could be a challenge awaiting Belichick that makes him say that you know what? Yeah, I know. Back in the day, I said I ain't going to be Lamar Levy coaching in my seventies, but the situation that I'm in right now, the player that I have right now at the quarterback position, you know what? I'm, I'm juiced. I'm looking forward to coaching this quarterback. I'm looking forward to guide this guy. So, you know what? Maybe I will still be coaching when I'm 71, 72, 73. Who cares, man? I mean, you know, hey, people are living longer, right? So why not? I think I have a scenario. I think I might have a situation. I don't know. I'm going to throw it out to you. I'm going to run it up the flagpole and see if you salute on the idea. But again, going back to the Patriots moving forward in the next couple of seasons, you know, one of the things that's going to be hard is the fact that Belichick keeps losing quality assistants. Now, a lot of them turn out to be not quality coaches, head coaches, but when you're taking a look at every year, a wide receivers coach or a defensive coordinator or an offensive coordinator or offensive or the quarterback coach is being taken by a team because they want to be part of the Belichick way. We, they want that coach to teach that franchise the quote-unquote Belichick way. What's it going to look like? Josh McDaniels, has a scheduled interview for Friday with Cleveland. What happens if he takes that job? What happens if the lure of coaching Baker Mayfield along with the talent at the offensive uh, positions, maybe that's enough for McDaniels to say, you know what, I don't, I have no idea when Belichick is going to retire and I really want to uh, take advantage of this opportunity. The time for me is now, especially if I go back to New England, I'm going to be dealing with a 43-year-old quarterback, Tom Brady. I mean, maybe the relationship needs to end. Maybe it's time for McDaniels to move on to another challenge. And again, when you're speaking about Baker Mayfield, who after his first uh, first year in the league, the meaning people were projecting that this guy was going to be not in four years or five years, but as early as either this year or his third year, he was going to be a top eight, top five quarterback. Well, then maybe Josh McDaniels takes a look at that and says, yeah, you know what? I've got a young quarterback here who I can groom and who I can teach and who I can mentor. i got a great wide receiver, Nodell Beckham Jr., who if he, he ain't going nowhere, he can talk about, he can go to every team's sideline and every team's coach and every team's defensive back and every team's defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, PR person, owner, fan base. Oh, you can do all them things. Guess what? Odell Beckham Jr. ain't going nowhere for Cleveland after he signed at the contract extension and then got traded to the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland isn't going to be releasing him. Cleveland isn't going to be trading him. Cleveland is not going to be waiving him after one season. McDaniels coming in, maybe that will light a fire under OBJ in terms of wanting to stay in the future for the organization looking bright. So maybe McDaniels goes ahead and takes that job. Then 
What happens to Bill Belichick as far as his assistants go moving forward? He already lost Matt Patricia. He already lost Brian Flores. He already lost Joe Judge. So what's going on? What's going to be happening? Teams in the AFC, they're ready to replace New England men and and Pittsburgh for that matter. I mean, you also got to think about Pittsburgh here. I mean, you got a a 38-year-old Ben Roethlisberger that's going to be coming back from a torn tendon in his elbow. We don't know how he's going to be. Mike Tomlin isn't going anywhere, of course. And we know that typically Pittsburgh does not does not fall off a cliff that Pittsburgh normally is one of the teams that compete for championships and compete for titles. That's what their DNA and their mentality is. But I'm thinking about teams like the Baltimore Ravens, where they have a game changing culture, changing quarterback and Lamar Jackson and a solid coaching staff. As long as Greg Roman doesn't get the, uh, doesn't get an opportunity to go somewhere else. The offensive coordinator for the Ravens. I'm speaking about the Kansas City Chiefs, who have a generational talent at quarterback and Patrick Mahomes and a borderline Hall of Fame coach and Andy Reid, who still loves doing what he's doing. You have a team like the Houston Texans, who have a Hall of Fame talented type of quarterback. You have the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, I know Josh Allen looked like a clown show in the fourth quarter there, and he looked like he might not be ready for prime time. But what I see in Josh Allen is I see a guy with a Pro Bowl type of talent with a Cam Newton, Ben Roethlisberger type of potential and a strong emerging defense. That's the type of team I see with the Buffalo Bills in a very good running game and a very good up-and-coming coach. So I take a look at the Ravens. I take a look at the Chiefs. I take a look at the Texans and the Buffalo Bills. I take a look at a team like the Tennessee Titans with an emerging star as of a head coach in Mike Vrabel, one of the best young running backs in the game and a strong defense also, playmakers at the wide receiver and tight end position. I see all those things, and I say to myself, yeah, that might motivate Belichick to stay in the fight, but damn, if he's going to be losing to these guys on a consistent basis when you're 71 years old, who needs that shit, right? So it's going to be interesting, man. It's going to be interesting. So when will the Patriots, when will the Patriots start the rebuilding process? Are they going to be one of these teams? I mean, the Steelers do it, right? The Steelers somehow, someway seem to find a way to keep themselves on the regular, a playoff contending team. They never have to quote unquote tank a season or they never have to quote unquote become bad so they can draft a franchise quarterback or draft a, a, a defensive end or a, a playmaker with a number two pick in the draft or the top three pick or four pick. They're always somehow, some way through draft, through other ways to keep themselves relevant and to talk about winning championships, competing for championships. Is that what New England does? Is Bill Belichick looking to maybe say, you know what? I got a defense, but we got to do something with that offense. I'm sorry. There's not enough. There's just not enough on offense for Belichick to say, I'm one wide receiver. I'm one tight end. I'm one consistent running back away from my offense being the type of offense that can compete for a championship. He just doesn't have it. He doesn't have it on the offensive line where they were inconsistent all season. He doesn't have it at the wide receiver position where Nikhil Harry was learning the whole year long at the first round draft pick. You had Julian Elliman who was nice, but you know, the load that he carried proved to be a little bit too much for him to stay relatively healthy free uh, throughout the season. Other than Jacoby Myers. I mean, you know, they, they just didn't happen. They don't have any tight ends. So the Patriots are a long, 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 long way. And I don't know how they do it. I don't I don't know of any wide receivers that they can draft. I don't know what any tight ends that they can acquire. I don't know who they can 
uh, acquire a free agency as far as the offensive playmakers are concerned that's going to all of a sudden elevate the New England Patriots to where moving forward in the next couple of years or even as soon as next season for them to be dealing with the Titans and dealing with the Houston Texans and the Kansas City Chiefs and the Baltimore Ravens, so on and so forth. So again, will they ever start the rebuilding process with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick as a wide receiver and coach? I'm quite sure, man, that Tom Brady isn't going to be sticking around at 43. I, I know, I know, I know. He said that he wants to play quarterback at 45. Yeah, I know, I know, man, I know. I know he said that he'd still be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. I got all that, okay? I I can read and I can hear. I got all that. But, man, you know, the Tom Brady that can turn chicken shit into chicken salad, that, that nonsense is done. That that guy is no longer there. Tom Brady, I think, can still be a quarterback that can win you a championship. But he's going to be the guy that's going to have to be part of the squad, not being the leader in terms of being that quarterback where you say, please, Tom, put this franchise, put this team on your shoulders and lead us to a championship. He can't do that anymore. That Tom Brady is done. That Tom Brady is gone. At the very best, at the very, very best, Tom Brady can be anywhere between a top 10, top 12 quarterback. And you're thinking about a 42, 43, 44-year-old Tom Brady still being better than half of the quarterbacks in the league. That's remarkable. That's outstanding. That's astonishing. But quarterbacks who are the 10th best in the league, quarterbacks who are 12th best in the league, they don't put teams on their shoulders and win championships. Now, you could get hot at the right time like Nick Foles did and win a Super Bowl that way. But from week one all the way up to the playoffs and to the Super Bowl, a quarterback who is number 12, a quarterback who is number 14 as far as rankings are concerned, they don't, they're not required, they're not asked to put a franchise, to put a team on their shoulders and lead them to the, to the Super Bowl because they know that it can't be done. How do we know that New England's defense is going to be as great as it was this year moving forward? So again, when do the Patriots start the rebuilding process? Do they start the rebuilding process? Do they even know what a rebuilding process is? These guys probably don't even know. They probably can't even spell the word, word rebuild for the success that they've had. Winning 80% of their games over a 20-year stretch, that's something that damn near even top college coaches don't even do for that period of time. Nick Saban in Alabama ain't going to be able to do that. Urban Meyer at Florida and Utah and and Ohio State isn't going to be able to do that. I mean, Jimbo Fisher at Florida State wasn't able to do that. That's fucking hard, man, especially in a parody league like the NFL. But now, for the first time, Bill Belichick doesn't have that Lamar Jackson. He doesn't have that Deshaun Watson. He doesn't have that Russell Wilson. He doesn't have that Patrick Mahomes. He doesn't have that franchise player that we can say, put the damn franchise on your back. Lead us to a championship. Baltimore has a guy who might be able to do that for the next three to four years. Seattle has a guy who can do that for the next three to four years. The Kansas City Chiefs have, have a guy who potentially could do that for the next seven or eight years, along with the Tennessee Titans. Or excuse me, along with the uh, Houston Texans. Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft, and the New England Patriots don't have that quarterback anymore. They did before for the last 16, 15 years. And you could argue that no one did it better 
please save me the Carly Simon song. Nobody did it better. But man, moving forward, what do you do? When do you start the rebuilding process? When will they move on from Brady? When will they start grooming another quarterback? Do you go out and get yourself an Andy Dalton? Do you go out and get yourself an Alex Smith type of quarterback? Do you, who, what do you do? Do you draft a quarterback? They drafted Jared Stidham in the fourth round of the draft last season. Do you, do you swing with that? Do you move on with that? I tell you one thing, I'm going to tell you right now. Remember I was talking about, there's a scenario where I think that might revigorate and I don't, I'm not, I don't think Bill Belichick is burned out by any stretch of the imagination. I don't, so when I say rejuvenate, I'm, I'm not saying that he's Dick Vermeil the first time he was with the Philadelphia Eagles where he was just burned out or when John Madden, after 10 years with the Oakland Raiders as a coach, he just said, I'm done. I'm going to get into a cruiser and head off into the sunset and make great football games and make a, make a boatload of money doing that. What I'm saying is there's a situation that could really be a twinkle in Bill Belichick's eye. And we know how Bill Belichick likes to twinkle with that eye. What what happens, say, for instance, let's say first round, or let's say he moves up to the second round. Could you see a scenario possibly where if Jalen Hurts, the quarterback for Oklahoma, could you see a possibility of maybe, not, 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 not the first round, maybe not the first round, but I'm thinking maybe somewhere in the second round, he moves up in the second round to draft Jalen Hurts. I think that would be, I mean, I think that would really be intriguing. Now, look, draft experts think that he won't be drafted in the first round. McShay and Mel Kuyper of ESPN, they think that he's a second or third round type of player. Bleacher reports Matt Miller sees Hurts falling to the third round. The Athletics' Dave Brugler thinks that he's a strong offseason, uh, that a strong offseason could, you know, put Hertz's draft status somewhere in day two. I tell you this, look, hey, Dak Prescott was, what, a fourth-round draft pick? The greatest quarterback who ever played, arguably, was a sixth-round draft pick. Tony Rombo was, was undrafted, and he was a really good quarterback for Dallas for a long time. I mean, there's been there's been situations, of course, where quarterbacks have been great. Russell Wilson was, what, a third-round draft pick, and you see what he's doing now for the Seattle Seahawks. So just because you don't get drafted in the first round or even the second round doesn't mean that you're going to be a bust as a quarterback. I say this, man. You know, I take a look at Hurts, and I say to myself, he played three seasons under Nick Saban, and then he played one with Lincoln Riley, and we know the type of relationship that Saban and Bill Belichick has, so I'm quite sure if Belichick was intrigued with Hertz, that he would get some really good intel from Nick Saban, who thinks the world of Jalen Hurts. And Hertz has this type of Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson, Tim Tebow in college type of leadership and competitive skills to where, look, I'm not saying that Jalen Hurts is going to come in there and set the world on fire or be that guy that's going to be the generational great to put alongside Mahomes and Watson and Carson Wentz if he can stay injury-free and possibly Dak Prescott. I'm not saying those, I'm not saying that, but I can see a situation where Bill Belichick can get his hands on Jalen Hurts and with his competitive fire, I mean, you know, if you watch these NFL greatest players, 100 players, let's show it Rich Eisen and Belichick and Chris Collinsworth, and they were going through all of the great players. I remember at the end of the show, 
the last show that they had with the quarterbacks and they were talking about, you know, what do these great Hall of Fame, unbelievable top 100 football players have in common? And Belichick, Belichick said the one thing that is common with all of these guys is that these guys just love to play the game and they play it the right way and they play it to make their teammates better. Man, doesn't that sound like Jalen Hurts? As far as character, as far as leadership, in terms of all of the things, maturity, professionalism, leadership, I mean, isn't that what many people think the Patriot way is all about? You don't think Belichick could possibly gravitate toward that, especially when he might need a quarterback? Now, look, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know. I don't have any intel. I was just thinking about this the other day. If the New England Patriots are going to be thinking about draft drafting themselves a quarterback or finding a replacement quarterback. And maybe if it's not even for, maybe the scenario says, you know what, Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady decide that they're going to sign a three-year deal, one-year guaranteed or something like that. And maybe Brady does play for New England one more year. I would love to see the possibility of, in maybe the second or third round, if he's still available, the New England Patriots drafting someone like a Jalen Hurts, let him learn from Tom Brady, and then when it's time for Brady to depart, retire, or do whatever, you know, put the put the competition out for Jalen Hurts to compete for that starting job. But that's just something where I think that maybe, possibly, possibly, it could be something where it could intrigue Bill Belichick. Again, I'm not sitting here saying that Bill Belichick is trying to search for any type of reason to stay in the game of coaching football. I think, again, that he'll be coaching football for at least, I think, two to three more seasons. Don't know that for sure, but that would be my guess. But, yeah, man, it, it's it's over. It is over. The New England Patriots dynasty, the one that you came to love, the one that you came to know, from coast to coast, from the north to the south to the east, to the West. That dynasty is over. Sugar pie, honey bunch. You know that I love you, girl. Welcome back to the program, Wendell's World in Sports. I can't help myself. I'm talking sports to you with nobody else. I hope I'm talking to more than just one person. I mean, gosh, that'd be kind of cruel, don't you think? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, I want to ask you a question, man. What really happens now to Tom Brady? What really, really happens to Tom Brady? Should he stay with New England? Should he go on to another team? Hey, let me tell you something, man. It wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, you can bring up Kobe. You can bring up Tim. You can bring up Cal. You can bring up all these great football players and baseball players and basketball players who stayed with their team for their entire career. The Dirk Davisky's of the world and the Bill Russell's of the world and the Jim Brown's of the world and the Barry Sanders of the world. And you can bring up all of them players and talk about how wonderful and marvelous and fantastic that it is. But let me tell you something. For every... 
Cal Ripken Jr. for every all-time great sports athlete who decided to stay with their team for their entire time, Reggie Miller. There's always someone like a Jerry Rice who had three productive seasons from ages 39 to 41 in Oakland. You can bring up Brett Favre, who had one of his best seasons in Minnesota, where he threw 33 touchdowns and seven interceptions, completed 68% of his passes for 4,200 yards, and was a bad interception away from leading Minnesota to the Super Bowl in that loss against the New Orleans Saints, where the Saints beat the living shit out of that guy. We can even talk about Tom Brady's idol, Joe Montana, remember? He won 17 and 8 in two seasons at the age of 37 and 38 with Kansas City. Back in the day where 37 and 38 for a pro football player was old. And for two years with KC under Marty Schottenheimer, he threw for 29 touchdowns and 16 interceptions and over 5,300 yards in the days where it wasn't so easy to accumulate a lot of touchdowns and a lot of yardage. Peyton Manning played four seasons with Denver after a neck injury sidelined him for the entire season from ages 36 to 39. And Peyton Manning for football was an old 36, 36, 37, 38, 39-year-old. And he won a Super Bowl and set a single-season record as far as throwing touchdowns after he left Indianapolis. So, hey, man, it can happen. It's there. And I'm talking about guys who went on to have productive. I'm not talking about the Johnny Unitas or the Emmett Smith who played in Arizona or or the Joe Namath who played for the Rams. I'm not talking about those guys who were way past their prime and couldn't get it done. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Tom Brady can still be that guy who can lead a team. Not lead a team, but who could be an integral part of the team to get them to the opportunity of winning a championship, of having a really successful season. So for Tom Brady, I think it really comes down to in terms of does he stay in New England? Does he go somewhere else? It just comes down, I think, to his value system. Look, I haven't talked to Tom Brady. I bet you Giselle doesn't even know what Tom is going to do. Tom, darling, anyone, exactly what the fuck are you going to do with your career? And you'll say, bitch, I don't know. Get out of my face. No, I'm just joking. But even, I think even his loved ones don't even know what he's going to do with his career. I mean, again, it comes down to the value system. What expectations does he have coming back for his 21st season? Does he want to play for the Patriots, or does he want to play for a Super Bowl? I think if he comes back and plays for the Patriots, I think that he's got some type of, I think he's got it in his belief that, you know what, we are a player or two away or a player or two away from competing for a Super Bowl. I don't think Tom Brady's going to come back. I think if Tom Brady's going to come back and say, yeah, these are the weapons that you're going to have, and they're going to be just about the same as they were this season, I don't know. I really don't know if Tom Brady even wants to come back to New England. I know he wants to play. He's made that abundantly clear. Look, I ain't retiring, okay? So let's stop that bullshit right now. I ain't retiring. And he ain't going to do a Michael Jordan where if I'm not playing for Phil Jackson, I just won't play at all. He's not doing that either. I think from Jordan, he learned that lesson. Like, you know what? Especially at my age, yeah, I don't have the opportunity to you know, go out like, you know, the cool way and this, that, and the other and say, yeah, you know what, fuck it. If I ain't going to be playing for him, I ain't playing for nobody. And then halfway through next season, he's sitting there going, oh shit, I should have still be, I should still be playing. I think it's a situation where Tom Brady knows, look, I want to play somewhere, okay? And I still think that I'm a good enough football player, not just for the 2020 regular season, but 21-22 regular season. And I'm still a good enough football player where I could be 
a important piece of a team winning the championship. I don't think Tom Brady is delusional enough. I think that he's intelligent and realistic enough to say, look, you know, as far as the super duper unbelievable stars, faces of the franchise, blah, 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 for 2021, 20, 22 seasons, look, that moniker can go to Lamar. I'll give that torch to Deshaun. And Russell's got it now, and he's doing great. If Carson can stay healthy, there you go. Uh, Lamar and Patrick Mahomes. I mean, you young cats, look, man, y'all do y'all thing. You know what? Y'all go ahead, take the lead, be the face of the league, blah, blah, blah. That's wonderful. That's great. That's fantastic. I've done there. I've been there. I've done that. So I think Tom now is just about, man, where can I go to win championships? Where can I go to give myself the best opportunity to win? That's what I think. And that's why I say, I don't think he comes back to New England. I just don't. I think he moves on and goes somewhere else. Now, it could be a situation where Robert Kraft is like, look, man, you know, you're a patriot. You're always going to be a patriot. You need to stay here. We can still get it done. We can still make the moves. You know, we're the New England Patriots. You know what we've done for the past 19, 20 years. We've got Bill Belichick, the greatest coach of all time, blah, blah, blah. But stay, stay, Tom. I love you like a son. How much money do you want? I know you're not taking a hometown discount. Please, Tom, Tom, please, please stay, Tom. That might persuade him to stay with the Patriots, but I think in the end, Brady wants to win. And I think there's a little thing. I don't think it's a boulder. I don't think it's a chip, but I think there's just something as far as with the competitive fire that Tom Brady has. I think he wants to say, I think that he would love to win a championship without Bill Belichick. I think that he would just love to say, look, for all y'all who think that, oh, the Patriots' success was all based on Bill Belichick, Fuck you. Watch me. I think there's just a, I don't, I don't think it's enough for him to make a ridiculous decision. I don't think it's based on something where emotionally he'll make a decision to leave the Patriots because he wants to fuck Bill Belichick or say, you know, stick it to Bill Belichick. I'm not saying that, but I think the competitor and just the ego of Tom Brady wants to say, you know what? I can win a championship without Bill Belichick. Let me go to a team. That's a quarterback away from winning a championship, man. Give me some weapons, man. Give me some weapons and have me get paid. And let me show you what I can do. One of the reasons why I think ultimately Tom Brady is going to be playing somewhere else. Now, where is he going to play? I have no idea. Will he play for the LA Chargers for two seasons? I mean, hell, he can play with Keaton Allen and Mike Williams and Austin Eckler and tight end Hunter Henry. And I'm quite sure Melvin Gordon might be having second thoughts or maybe might reconsider playing with the Chargers if Tom Brady is playing on the uh, on that squad, what it could do for the city of L.A. I mean, it would be just as big as when Wayne Gretzky moved from Edmonton to L.A. to play for the Kings. It would be just as big as LeBron going from Cleveland to go to play with the Lakers. I mean, Tom Brady, the Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, the six-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback who's ever played the game Tom Brady coming into L.A. where he lives in the offseason. Anyway, he can go ahead and start the revitalization of football in L.A., and save, basically save the Chargers franchise for a couple of seasons? Man, that would be, that. you don't think that might be intriguing for Brady to do? And just think about it. Just think about what it would mean to the LA market from a sports standpoint. You have Cody Bellinger playing for the Dodgers. You have 
Mike Trout playing for the Anaheim Angels. You've got Tom Brady in the fall playing for the New England Patriots. You'd have LeBron James playing in this winter and spring for the LA Lakers. I mean, all of a sudden, the LA market for football, baseball, and basketball would be the epicenter in terms of the interest in those sports. It would be something else. It would be really be something else. I think if you're just looking from a pure standpoint, and let's also not forget, Anthony Lynn is a goddamn good coach. A very fucking good coach. So he wouldn't also be going to a team that he wouldn't be doing what LeBron did when he went back from Miami to Cleveland and had to deal with David Blatt. No, this is a situation where if Brady made that move to go from New England to the Chargers, everything was set up to be really nice. You've got Joey Bosa, you've got Melvin Gordon, you've got a really good defense, you have weapons on the running back and the offensive uh, and, the, and the wide receivers and such. If he wants to win a Super Bowl, then I think he should seriously consider what it would be like to play for the L.A. Chargers. Well, I mean, shit, no one goes watches their game and all the other teams that come in there, they have the home field advantage and it's an embarrassment to the league. You don't think the NFL offices, you don't think the NFL itself is rooting that Tom Brady goes to the L.A. Chargers? You think that scenario would still be the case? If Tom Brady was playing for the L.A. Chargers, I don't think so. In that little small stadium right there, they would sell out that joint. They would sell season tickets out the wazoo within 15 fucking seconds if Tom Brady said that he was going to play for the L.A. Chargers. It would be a great coup if Brady wants to win championships. That's, in my opinion, that's, I think, to be the best place for him to go. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace on the podcast, so doggone glad that you could be with us. Hey, you know what? Another great place would be the Indianapolis Colts. He could get to work with Frank Wright, who's a very good offensive guy. Team has some cap space. They have a roster that's ready to complete. That got two cons to compete, excuse me. They have a solid defense, T.Y. Hilton. They have a winnable division that they play in. That could also be a squad that Tom Brady could go to. But then again, you know, other teams that could work. You get Tennessee, you get Carolina, possibly. You get Chicago. I'm sorry, Mitchell Trubisky. Hit the road, Mitch. And don't you come back, you bitch, you bitch, you bitch, you bitch. No, all right, all right. The only reason why I said Mitch and bitch is because they rhyme. I don't think Mitchell Trubisky is a bitch. I just, you know, when you just, it's just, it's just you know, hit the road, Mitch. And don't you come back, you bitch, you bitch. Okay, you get it. But so, no, but really, as a quarterback, you don't think that Tom Brady would be an upgrade over Mitchell Trubisky? I think so. Everyone who knows football thinks so. Even if it's for one or two seasons, a 40, yes, a 44-year-old Tom Brady, I think, would be a better option than Mitchell Trubisky. Let's put it this way. It couldn't be any worse. And you have a defense that's ready to win a championship, that's ready to win a Super Bowl now. So guess what? Tom Brady does not have to go into a situation where he has to throw for 4,500 yards and light the world on fire. And if you remember, with a limited amount of talent that he had from the wide receiver, tight end, and running back position, Tom Brady still threw for over 4,200 yards. Yowzers. So we talk about he had career lows in this, and he had career lows in touchdowns and yards, completion percentage, and all of those things. I mean, he was still, again, pretty damn good for a guy who could join a team and be like, look, don't worry about being the Tom Brady of old. Just be a pretty good version of Tom Brady, and we can uh, be hoisting that uh, that Super Bowl trophy at the end of the season. So, I just think there's so many other, but there's so many other things that equate 
into the decision. And I'm quite sure the TV and Giselle and the kids and his manager and everybody close to him who he confides in is going to make a wise and sound decision. So, you know, man, do what you need to do. I'm not living your life. You are. So wherever you want to play, my man, go ahead and play. It's interesting, though, because now Brady's at the age where when it ends, it's going to end quickly. It's going to end where we don't see it. It's going to be like, yeah, last season, I saw just a little bit of slippage, but this season, wow, he sucks. There's going to come a time where, whether it be be next season, 44, 45, 40, how long he plays, there's going to be a week, there's going to be like a week, 10, 11, 12 game where we're going to be looking at Tom Brady and we're going to be feeling sorry for him. And it's just going to be, God, he needs to quit. He's He needs to quit. And you know the thing is, he's going to need, he's going to know it too. He's going to be out there and it's like, yeah, this is my last season. Yeah, this, this ain't working. I mean, we saw even when Peyton Manning was making that run with the Denver Broncos and winning that Super Bowl, we saw in those games that he was playing and where it was like, yeah, man, this is, this is it for this guy. I mean, there's no way that he can continue. There ain't no way he can go on the way that he's playing right now. He just doesn't have it anymore. Same thing with Brett Favre his last season with Minnesota. Here was a guy, as I mentioned before, I I uh, quoted the numbers. 33 touchdowns, seven interceptions, this, that, and the other. The next season, he fell off a cliff. Next season, I just remember watching him play, and it was like, this is pathetic. It's time for you to go. He knew it. Everybody knew it. There's going to come a time. I don't know. Maybe it could be next year. I don't know. But now we're into territory that's foreign to all of us because we've never seen a player try to do this, which is who is still at the level where he's at at a 42-year-old when we're speaking about Tom Brady. Yes, the whole thing with Alex Guerrero and some of the training that he does, his next level and all these things. And I tell you, Drew Brees is also a guy who's playing really great football at the age of 41. But it's going to come a time really, really quickly, and we're not going to be able to see it where it's just like, oh, shit, he's done. Or, I'm sorry, where we didn't anticipate it, where we just take a look at him and we say, oh, he's done, man. He's done. So... When you take Tom Brady, and I'm quite sure to sign him, it's going to cost somewhere between 28 to maybe 32, $33 million. I mean, if you're on the hook for a $33 million Tom Brady in the year of 2021, and he's done, he's finished, whew, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. But I'm just thinking as of right now, and for someone to make this decision, it's going to be mainly based on the name more than the performance. If you sign Brady to a three-year contract, you're buying into the whole deal of Tom Brady playing for your football team. The whole deal, and I mean the whole deal, is like Tom fucking Brady is going to be playing for my team. Holy shit, I got to get out there and see him play. That's the lie. It's not so much about, oh, Tom Brady, he can still read a defense. Oh, Tom Brady, still knowing the minutia of football. Oh, Tom Brady, this, that, and the other, as far as the football field is concerned. That goes into it, of course. But a lot of it is going to be, oh shit, we've got Tom fucking Brady on our squad. I got to go out and see him. I got to go out and see the legend. I got to go out and see the GOAT. I got to go see him. This is my best chance. So that also, I got to go out and get his jersey. Oh shit, Tom Brady is going to be in an L.A. Charger. How is he going to look number 12 with that with that new uniform, with those new colors, with that new 
and symbol him on his helmet. Oh my fucking goodness gracious. That's just, that's going to be it also. So it'll be interesting. Moving forward, Tom Brady staying in New England, going somewhere else. I think when everything is all said and done because he wants to win a championship and the position that the New England Patriots are in right now, and maybe again, there's a situation where he ignores the pleas of Robert Kraft to say, please stay with us until your career is over, Tom. I think there's a little bit of Tom Brady that says, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to win a championship, and I'm going to be doing it, as Frank Sinatra said, my way. Windows World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on in the world of football. I am fighting a cold right now. Once a year, I get sick, and it really sucks. I hate it. I'm not the type of guy to take aspirin or anything like that. I like to just to do it the natural way. I want to get a, I want to get to the point in my life to where that's one of the reasons why I don't take aspirin or anything like that. When I get to the point in my life where I really need to be taking that stuff, I wanted those things to be as potent as possible. And I think sometimes your body can get used to aspirin and some other things every time you get a little sniffles that you go ahead and you pop an aspirin or or drink some NyQuil or anything like that. So I'm struggling, but I am still hanging on. Still hanging on. So bear with me. Sometimes I sneeze or just, or just do the snuffles or snivels or whatever. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Hey, I already said that. So, let's talk about the biggest upset of the wild card this weekend with the Minnesota Vikings over the New Orleans Saints in overtime, 26-20. to Kirk Cousins hit Kyle Rudolph with a four-yard fade on third down and goal. In overtime for the win. Wow, man. I mean, you know, look, everyone's going to be sitting up here and everyone was talking about, hey, what about Kirk Cousins, huh? Kirk Cousins, huh? Proving everybody wrong, proving everybody wrong. How do you like that? You like that and all that kind of nonsense? Look, it was never it was never personal for me with Kirk, with Kirk Cousins. I, you know, I, the criticism about Kirk Cousins not being able to win a important game, that was legit. That was not something where we were just taking shots at him because, ha, 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 isn't this guy a bum and we just want to make fun of him? No, that was legit. You take a look at his record. He hadn't won a big game throughout his career. So when you're seven or eight years into your career, you're getting paid $28 million guaranteed, and your responsibility excuse me, your responsibility is to lead your team to a Super Bowl victory, and you haven't done it, or at least we, uh, lead your team to a win in a big game, and you haven't done it yet, yeah, naturally, it's going to be out there to say, Gee, can he get it done? He's not going to get it done or whatever. So please give me a break. So again, he played well on Sunday. 26 to 20. Upset over New Orleans. Many people thought, including myself, 
were one of the few that could win the championship. He hit Kyle Rudolph with a four-yard fade on third and goal. He threw a 43-yard pass to Adam Thielen at the two-yard line. Three plays later, bing, bang, boom, there you go. It was Minnesota's first road playoff win since January 9th, 2005, where they beat the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau Field in the wild card round. Was that the game where Randy Moss mooned the uh, mooned the crowd and Joe Buck lost his mind or something like that? I think that might have been the last time that the um, that the Vikings won on the road, or that was the that was one of the highlights of the Vikings win on the road against the Packers. So you take a look at the offensive stars for Minnesota again. Hey, Kirk Cousins went 19 of 31 for 242 yards and a touchdown. Dalvin Cook had 134 yards of total offense. Criticism of Cousins again. I'll say it before justified. Two and ten in his career against teams that made the playoffs. 3-11-1 against teams that entered the game with a winning record. I'm sorry. That's not, we're not being mean. We're not being unfair. It's natural. And in saying that, just because you had a great game and just because you beat the Saints, that doesn't mean that, okay, now if you have a stinker against the San Francisco 49ers, we're not going to bring it up that you can't, that you can't sustain any type of consistency of beating a good team. Why? Because you only did it once. And, and if you think about it, you remember after New Orleans scored in the fourth to cut the lead from 10 to three, you remember that? Well, you know what happened on Minnesota's next possession? They ran the ball eight times and threw it only four. And Cousins handed off on six consecutive plays before throwing an incomplete pass about 40 yards downfield. I'm sorry, man. If you're an elite quarterback, you don't hand the ball off eight times. I don't care if you are being coached by Mike Zimmer. So, even though people want to sit there and be like, hey, how about that? Even in a situation where, <clears throat> excuse me, even in a situation where you could prove that you have the utmost faith in Kirk Cousins, there might have been just a tinge amount of, well, not, not quite yet. Let's not go there quite yet in terms of handing the responsibilities of winning the game totally to Kirk Cousins. So, yeah. Give me, give me a break about this. Ha, ha, ha. Don't you feel dumb? Everybody was wrong about that. No, I don't think so. The de- Vikings defense played great. Forced Breeze into two turnovers. One game after the Saints finished the regular season with a NFL record low eight turnovers. Critical fumble on a sack by Breeze. He also threw an interception. They also sacked him three times. Good game by Minnesota. Really good game. And they have the weapons. A- again, as I mentioned before, if... Minnesota can get a week six, week seven Kirk Cousins in the playoffs. They have a really good chance of beating the uh, San Francisco 49ers. Adam Thielen looks fully recovered. You still got Stephon Diggs, Kyle Rudolph sometimes. Uh, sometimes people forget about how important and how good he is as a tight end. Dalvin Cook from the running back position. They have the talent. They have the, 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 the players, both offensively and defensively, to win against San Francisco. Now let's see if they can do it. And now let's see if Kirk Cousins can go ahead and play the type of football two weeks in a row like he did this past weekend against the New Orleans Saints, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Excuse me for, for a second. I've got the um, I've got AEW wrestling on in the background. So while I'm performing this, while I'm recording this, I'm taking a look at Brandy Rhodes. Boy, that's a good-looking woman, man. Her promo is her promos are terrible. 
the program that she's doing right now is awful with awesome Kong and all that kind of stuff. But man, Cody Rhodes, you have you have overachieved, my man. You are one lucky guy. Treat her right. Treat her right. Brandy Rhodes is outstandingly deliciously attractive. Okay, back to what uh, I'm sorry, back back to what uh, back to what I was talking about. The uh, asteroid. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the uh, Vikings versus the uh, New Orleans Saints. Out, man. You take a look at the Saints, man. How many more of these games can they go through? How much? How much more can they go through this? This is the third playoff game, I think, in the last four or five, where it's just been like, fuck. Twenty seventeen, they finished the regular season eleven to five. They lose on the last play of the game to the uh, Vikings. What was it called? The Minnesota Miracle, 29-24. Heartbreaking. You're thinking to yourself, damn, man, that might be something where the Saints don't recover from. Well, guess what? They recovered next season and, and then some. They finished 2018 with a 13-3 record, and then they lose at home in the NFC Championship game to a bogus, to a blown pass interference call against the Rams. Now, you're talking about 2019. They lose in overtime to the Minnesota Vikings where everybody was sitting up there talking about they're going to be moving on. I mean, especially when they didn't, they shouldn't even have to play this game. If Seattle would have been able to score six inches away from a touchdown in the winning score in the regular season finale on Sunday Night Football against the San Francisco 49ers. So they were six inches away from not even having to worry about playing in a game like this. So it's just like, how much more, how much more can the Rams? I mean, excuse me, how much more can the Saints take? I mean, Drew Brees is 41 years old uh, this upcoming week. He said at the press conference, he was like, look, 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 I'm not making any comments. In fact, his quote was, I'm not making any comments on that when they talked about, you know, are you going to retire? What are your future plans? Basically, are you going to retire? And he said, quote, I'm not making any comments on that other than, as I told you guys the last couple of years, I always take it one year at a time. I kind of reevaluate each offseason, find the things I want to get better at, and move along. So basically what he's saying is, look, I'm not retiring, but basically I don't know how much longer I can go through these bullshit losses, man, because it's just, as, even as a franchise, I mean, it's almost like the regular season is damn near null and void, right? Because look, 11 and 5, 13 and 3, 14 and 2, it means nothing. Because they lost in 2017, or excuse me, in 2018, they lost at home. In 2019, they lost at home. They lost after going 13-3. and They lost after winning the AFC, uh, NFC South. I mean, all of these things. How much more can the New Orleans Saints take? So Breeze's contract, he signed a two-year $50 million contract in 2018 to pay the $23 million in 2019. $12 million roster bonus, $11 million in salary. Nice chunk of change if you can get it. But that contract voids in March, so he's going to have to get another one done. Now, I don't think that Drew Brees is going to be going anywhere. I mean, you know, you've got, uh, we talk about Bill Belichick, we talk about uh, Tom Brady, but you know what? Hey, I mean, if they're outside of them, another combo in terms of productivity and greatness. We're speaking about a coach-quarterback relationship like, Drew Brees and Sean Payton? I think not. I mean, this season, despite missing games with a thumb injury, I mean, Brees was still good, through for 27 touchdowns, four interceptions, completed 75% of his passes. Yeah, he's not throwing the ball 40 yards down the field anymore, but in terms of Michael Thomas still being in the prime of his career, it would be nice for them to get another, 
another wide receiver that could help him out because Ted Ginn as your number two receiver, as we've shown, is not getting it done. Jared Cook is an emerging tight end, but it would be nice for the Saints in the offseason somewhere. I mean, they tried Antonio Brown the year before that. They tried uh, Dez Bryant before he towards Achilles or blew out his knee or did something. So the Saints are still looking for that number two wide receiver. I don't know how much of a difference it would have made in this game. But uh, again, they, they, they have to keep looking, man. They have to just keep going and just keep finding somehow a way. Here's what I don't want to hear. Here's what I don't want to hear from uh, New Orleans Saints fans. Save me, the, save me the whining and the complaining. The non-call for pass... Offensive pass interference on a game-winning touchdown pass. No, 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 no. Shut up, shut up. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. <coughs> the NFL president of officiating, Al Riverton, he said that the league reviewed num- reviewed numerous replay angles, and while they saw contact by both players, quote, none of that contact rises to the level of a foul. Here's my thing, man. For those who were talking about, that should have been offensive pass interference. They should have called that. They should have reviewed it and said it was offensive pass interference. Here's the problem with all of that. The overturns of pass interference, it's been so inconsistent this year that you could point to numerous times where there has been a much more obvious pass interference, offensive and defensive pass interference calls where the referee or where the coach did throw the flag and they went into the monitor and they took a look and they took a look at it and they said, no go, everything is great. I'm thinking of the game shit. It was, um, it was Houston versus Baltimore. I think it was early in the game. And I mean, it was early in the game. It was as obvious of a pass interference as obvious could be. And Bill O'Brien threw the flag. And it was just like everybody, Dan Fouts, everybody who was calling the game. The referee that was, you know, they usually have the referee when they needed questions to ask. They go to this referee and they go, yep, no, maybe so. Even that guy was like, oh, yeah, that's going to be passing affairs. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. That was pretty obvious. They came back. Nope, nothing to see there. Incomplete pass, second down. It's like, what? We don't, I don't know. But people, I don't know what they're looking at. And when they're talking about it's got to be obvious, that wasn't obvious, obvious. But then again, who knows? Because the doggone replays have been so damn inconsistent. And I'm like, you know, in a situation like that, a lot of it is because Kyle Rudolph is like 6'7", 260, and yoked, and the player that was covering him was a lot less in terms of height and stature. So maybe it was even more obvious to New Orleans Saints fans that something like that should have been called. But nah, man, I'm, I'm one of these guys who was kind of like, let, let, the, let the boys play. Let the men play the game of football. The less we can see of the referees, the less flags that are thrown. Haven't we been complaining about that all season long? That doggone it, we can't even get into a good rhythm in terms of watching a football game. A football game can't really get into a good rhythm. Why? Because it seems like every other play, a flag is being thrown. And if you think it's bad in the NFL, go watch a college football game. I mean, sometimes I think that these referees are pulling out penalties out of their fucking asses, some of the shit that they be calling. So, yeah, I mean, I'm one of these where it's kind of like, hey, look, man, if you need to let a holding call go, let it go. If, if, if it's close, borderline, maybe sort of could have in terms of pass interference, roughing the passer, defensive uh, holding, and all this other nonsense, let it go. 
let it go. And damn, I did not want to see another replay, another huddle, another 10 minutes of these guys with the headphones on, taking a look at the monitor, trying to figure out, showing 15,000 fucking replays of the same goddamn play. I didn't want to see any of that shit. Pass completed, game over. Both of those guys were fighting for the ball. One guy was bigger, stronger. He caught it, game's over. Sorry, that's the way it goes. And hey, you know what? If I was a New Orleans Saints fan, the culture of that team and what it means to the city, I can understand your anger. I can understand your outrage. But hey, man, from a guy who is just trying to watch a good game and the less of the referees I can see, the less calls that can be made, the better. I think it's awesome. Let it go. I think there's too many goddamn rules in football anyway. I think I think, I think what's happening with football and why the referees get so much flack is because there's so many damn rules on the rule book that it's like, let's let these motherfuckers play. Man, enough with the nonsense about every other play calling a, a penalty. I got so used this season of watching football where a great play was made or a touchdown catch or a touchdown play was made, a bomb or a long play. And I couldn't even immediately celebrate or I couldn't immediately, you know, really get into what just happened because I was looking for the flag. Okay, are they going to call holding? Are they going to call this? Oh, there was an interception return for a pick six. Oh, wait a minute. Do I have to see if there's any laundry on the field? Because there could be on the other side. Defensive holding. I mean, just way to the less I see of the referees, the better. Now, if it's, if it's an egregious Miss like it was in the championship game uh, last season in the NFC. Yeah, I get that. I understand that. But please, no more. Please, just let these guys play. Let them play. Let them play. Let them play. And that non-pass interference, offensive pass interference call, fantastic. Bravo. Let the guys play. Let the guys play. One more time. Let the guys play. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on in the world of sports. Man, I uh, I know that I promised that I was going to be, I think the last, didn't I say something about I was going to be putting out a podcast like 72 hours after I came out with the last one, but I think it's been more than 72 hours. I apologize. I apologize like I'm Anita Baker. I apologize. So to make it up, even though I am sick as a dog dog, and I have to wake up at 4.45 tomorrow morning to go to work and help Clark County in his teachings, I am going to do what I can to get this podcast out for you for tomorrow morning. So when you wake up and you hear this podcast, you could be at work going, yeah, or no. So that's my goal. What time is it now? 8.46. And um, I'm starting to waver just a little bit, but I'm going to soldier on. But don't call me soldier boy. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, and Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad that you could be with us. Wildcard weekend continues. Uh, Houston over Buffalo in overtime, 
Houston was losing 16 to nothing in the third quarter when Deshaun Watson said, fuck this, I'm winning this game. Had 247 yards passing, ran for 55 yards, basically took the game over and made the play of the year in overtime. He evaded the sack by bouncing off one of the, uh, one of the defenders who was looking to decapitate him and then absorbing a hit from another defensive end who was looking to basically break every bone in his body. He rolled out and found Taiwan Jones for a 34-yard reception that set up a first down and goal. Good night. See you later. During the comeback from being down 16-0, not only did Deshaun Watson play a great game, not only did Deshaun Watson decide that he wanted to be great, the defense for Houston stepped stepped up also. Buffalo managed only 38 yards of offense in the span of 16 minutes and 25 seconds of the third and fourth quarter. So, look, we can talk about it. I was watching PTI with one of my, two of my heroes in terms of me being a sports fan, Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon, and they were talking about the egregious calls that were made by both the Buffalo Bills and the Houston Texans uh, near the end of the football game. Now, I will agree with the, the TK Corndog on one of them where he was talking about uh, the... <laughs> Sean McDermott going for it on 4th and 27. That was interesting. I didn't understand that one. But I will I will push back on uh, Will Bond, Mike Will Bond, just a little bit when he said how ridiculous and how stupid it was for Deshaun Watson and Bill O'Brien to call it. Well, it wasn't Deshaun Watson, but for Bill O'Brien to have Deshaun Watson go on a quarterback sneak uh, on 4th and 1, which basically would have iced the game. Hey, look. I'm one of these guys where it's kind of like, you know, you you go with who you are. If you're a conservative coach, if you have known to be conservative and as the team knows you at that, then you stick with who you are. But I think Bill O'Brien has always been one of those guys where, you know what, he comes from the Bill Belichick tree, where if it's going to be fourth and one, if you have the chance to win the football game right here and right now, you do it. And that was a similar situation where, the Texans were playing the Kansas City Chiefs in uh, during the regular season this year. And I understand that, look, you know, in the middle of the regular season is a whole lot different than the playoff games. If you lose in the regular season, in the middle of the regular season, you have about eight or nine more games to rectify that loss. If you make a mistake and you lose in the playoffs, you are done. So I, I get the situation, the circumstances might have been different. But Bill O'Brien, that's who he is. So getting back to that Kansas City Texan game, fourth and three, I think it was, an opportunity again for Houston if they make the first down to win the football game. Not only did Bill O'Brien have Deshaun Watson and the Houston offense go for it, he called a pass. Completed. Game over. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, Bill O'Brien, Bill Belichick DNA, Bill Belichick tree, going for it, that's what he does. So that's what the team expects, and it's almost his philosophy or his attitude will be, look, you know what, we're going to win this football game. If you can't get one yard, well, then maybe A, we don't deserve to win the football game as the way that we wanted to, and B, we still have a defense that should be able to uh, stop them. They didn't. They didn't make the first down. Buffalo went down and scored. Deshaun Watson did this Deshaun Watson thing. When everything is all said and done, everything is A-OK. So from that fourth and one, I disagree with Mike Wilbon vehemently, not vehemently, but he was he was outraged how stupid that guy was to go for it on fourth and one. He's done it before. But uh, I do agree with uh, Corn Dog Tony Kornheiser about um, 
the fourth and twenty-seven. Why didn't they kick the football? That was that was kind of interesting. And look, man, Josh Allen. I'm not going to pile on the guy. Yeah, he had a bad he had a bad fourth quarter. And everyone was talking about, well, why are we talking about Josh Allen? Why are we talking about Josh Allen? Do you see where he was? Do you see what type of quarterback he was his rookie season, which was last season? The steps and the strides that he made from year one to year two? Hey, man, I was one of them skeptics. I was one of these guys. I saw him play. I saw him play. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw him play the senior year. He was playing the Big Ten school. I don't know if it was Illinois. I don't know what it was Purdue. Anyway, it might have been Illinois, Illinois. It was either Illinois, Purdue, or Indiana. One of those two. I saw it on the uh, Big Ten Network because going into the season, going into his senior year up in Wyoming, everybody was talking about Josh Allen. This guy could be the number one quarterback, and this guy who had an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable avenue to get to where he was, and going from a junior college and growing up in a small rural town, and now where he's at now in uh, Wyoming and he's six foot eight and he's got a cannon for an arm and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, let me see what this cat's all about. And I saw him play against this big 10 school. It might've been Iowa. I think it was Iowa, something like that. And I was sitting there going, not impressed, not impressed at all. And he was also one of these guys where when Buffalo drafted him, it was kind of like, man, are we doing a redux of EJ manual here in terms of we're drafting this guy at this spot in the draft? the needs that we need on offense, and we're drafting this guy, aren't we reaching just a little bit? Josh Allen has come a long way from that guy. Josh Allen has come a long way from a guy who had to apologize from some offensive and racial tweets that he made when he was 13, 14 years old that people found on his Twitter account. So he's had to, A, kind of win the trust of the locker room, B, win the trust of the locker room in terms of him not only being a guy that they can count from a character standpoint, but also from a playing standpoint. Those guys love playing with him. Those guys love it. I guess the Texans, he made some great plays through the first three quarters. But look, the guy, once again, he's only in his second year and the improvement that he's been making from from his rookie year to now. He wasn't even supposed to be playing his rookie year. That's how green he was. He was going to get... He was going to get um, Aaron Rodgers. He was going to get Carson Palmer in terms of sitting out his entire first year. He was going to get Michael Vick. He was going to get Steve McNair not playing his first year of, uh, of being an NFL quarterback. So again, from where he began to where he is now, I think the future is really bright for Josh Allen. And as I mentioned before, I compared him to a cross between Ben Roethlisberger and Cam Newton in terms of what he could become moving forward. Let's see if that happens for him. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad that you could be with us. Seattle over Philadelphia, 17-9. Russell Wilson threw a 53-yard touchdown pass to DK Metcalf. Wilson threw for two, uh, 325 yards, led the team with 45 yards rushing. Metcalf led the team with seven catches and 160 yards. Also, for those who don't know, Russell Wilson did so much. He threw for 325 yards. He led the team in rushing with 45 yards. He actually flew the plane from Seattle to Philadelphia. He actually then, in the morning before the game, he was running around the street to Philadelphia where a bunch of kids started running behind him. And he was running up to the convention center or wherever that place was with the Rocky statue. And he started jumping up and down. And the kids around him were running behind him, ran up, surrounded him, and started chanting, Russell, Russell, Russell. And then after defeating Apollo Creed in 15 rounds by split decision, he ran back over to the Lincoln Field and threw for 325 yards and 45 yards rushing. This guy's unbelievable, isn't he?
I'm joking. Then afterwards, he came back and was celebrating with his wife, who is absolutely gorgeous. So, hey, man, fat contract, beautiful wife. Good job, Russell Wilson. Do your thing, bro. Do your thing. But now, uh, Wilson was um, really good in this game. Marshawn Lynch had a rushing score. The Seahawks had a season-high seven sacks from six players. I like Seattle. I've mentioned this before on the last podcast. I think my definition of what an MVP is, I think it's Russell Wilson. I think that the Baltimore Baltimore Ravens are not nearly as good without Lamar Jackson. If you replace Lamar Jackson and put in RG3, I don't think, I think at the very best, the Baltimore Ravens are a fringe playoff team in the AFC. I think if you take Russell Wilson off of the Seattle Seahawks, they don't win six games out of 16. I think Russell Wilson, for what he means to that organization, to that offense, to everything concerning winning, I think Russell Wilson is the most valuable player in the league. Now, I have, as I mentioned before in the last podcast, I have no problem with Lamar Jackson getting the MVP. No problem whatsoever. Well-deserved, no argument. But when we talk about MVPs, and we talk about people's different definition of MVP, there no, is no one solid, <coughs> excuse me, concrete definition of what an MVP is. Is it the best player in the league? Is it the most talented player in the league? Is it the best quarterback on the best team? Is it the player who puts up the greatest amount of numbers? Is it the player who... A team can't do without. What is the definition of an MVP? My definition of the most valuable player is just that. The most valuable player to their team. Russell Wilson is more valuable to the Seattle Seahawks than Lamar Jackson is to the Baltimore Ravens. So because of that, my vote would have been for Russell Wilson. But again, people's definition of what an MVP is differs and varies. But it just shows you again in this game against Philadelphia. It's great to have Russell Wilson because let's put it this way. If Lamar Jackson was playing in this game, well, I really can't say that because Philadelphia couldn't generate any offense, especially after Carson Wentz went down. But I think if Lamar Jackson was playing for the Seattle Seahawks in this game against the Philadelphia Eagles, let's put it this way. The game would have been much closer than what the score, than if uh, Russell Wilson was playing quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. Hi, I'm Wendell Wallace. It's good to meet you. Glad, thank you for listening. Boy, Carson Wentz, man. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. I don't know. I mean, you know, look, it's, when you say you feel sorry for somebody, put it in context. I feel sorry for the man who's sitting on death row right now who's been wrongly convicted and has spent the last 10, 15 years on death row I feel sorry for the man or the woman who's sitting in prison right now paying for a crime that they didn't commit. I feel sorry for someone who is suffering from some type of debilitating disease and doesn't have the financial wherewithal or means to take care of that problem. I feel sorry for people with fibromyalgia. I feel sorry for people with Parkinson's or or Lou Gehrig disease. I feel sorry for the elderly who need to continue to work because this country can't can't provide them the financial benefits for them to live the life that they should be living, which means relaxing and not working. I feel sorry for the elderly who need to be greeters at Costco or work at Walmart for the night shift because 
they need to keep working because of what some Enron assholes or what some other Wall Street pieces of shit has done for the retirement plans and for their IRAs. I feel really sorry for those people. So putting it all in context, when I say I feel sorry for Carson Wentz, a young, good-looking, married to a really great-looking gal and making a boatload of money who's political proof in terms of his financial wherewithal, I shouldn't say that I'm sorry, but I guess a little bit of me is just saying, damn, that sucks. Another disappointing end for this young man, you know? He was making his first career playoff start. He lasted two fucking series before leaving the game with a head injury following a helmet-to-helmet hit from Javanian Clowney. Look, man, it wasn't dirty. There shouldn't have been a flag. Again, the less the referees can put themselves into the game, the better. It sucked what happened to him. Sucks. Really does. And the injury history of Carson Wentz is well known. In 2017, this guy was supposed to be one of the leading candidates for the MVP, man. This is supposed to be his his leap to being that guy. He was supposed to be taking the same seat. He was supposed to be going into the same VIP section. He was supposed to be moving into the same neighborhood as a Drew Brees or a Ben Roethlisberger or a Peyton Manning at the time or a Tom Brady in terms of being an elite quarterback in 2017 when he tore his ACL in the 14th week of the season against the uh, Los Angeles Rams at the Coliseum. And they had to watch while Nick Foles led the Eagles to the franchise's first Super Bowl against the uh, New England Patriots and Tom Brady. Then in 2018, he was out with a back injury. And he had to watch Nick Foles lead Philadelphia to a wild card win in Chicago. So it's like... Finally, this guy, I mean, everything we say about Carson Wentz speaks of a guy who could be the face of the franchise, the face of the league, the best quarterback, the guy that takes the torch from Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and lead them on to the lead the league on to the next millennium or generation or whatever. He's supposed to be that guy, a guy who came from doggone North Dakota, another guy who wasn't some guy who came out of Ohio State and everything. This is supposed to be the guy. Great story. Great young man. All of these things. The only thing that stopped with this motherfucker is a doggone injury history. Damn. Ugh. So in that situation, in that scenario, it must be frustrating for Carson Wentz because it's like, look, man, what he did, and I mentioned it before, what he did for the Philadelphia Eagles down the stretch was the best thing that he did in his career. It was more impressive than what he did in 2017, again, where he was being considered the MVP of the league. What he did with the personnel that he had around him, the comebacks, I mean, he erased a lot of things, a lot of question marks. We talked about Kirk Cousins. you got to show me more than once before we take that moniker off about you not being a big game quarterback. Well, let me tell you something. Carson Wentz took that moniker off, broke it, buried it, burned it, got rid of it completely. Gotcha. A-OK. Don't bring that up anymore. Don't talk about it. We've got it. Evidence has proven that you are a clutch franchise quarterback, Carson Wentz. The only thing that's stopping you again is that doggone injury history. And again, I don't want to sit there and talk about shit. The referees have thrown a flag and all of that nonsense. The least, the less we see of the referees, the better. And I'm thinking, you know what came to my mind when I was thinking about this? And I was thinking about Philadelphia, and I was thinking about how passionate they are for their sports teams, whether it be the Eagles or the 76ers or the Phillies or the Flyers. You know, the, the one guy I was thinking about 
with Carson Wentz concerning the Philadelphia sports fandom and their athletes. Eric Lindros, you remember him? I mean, Carson Wentz, I hate to say this, but he's starting to become the biggest tease of an athlete playing for a sports franchise in Philadelphia since Eric Lindros, man. Because Lindros came into the league and he was supposed to be setting it on fire. Power forward who could place himself right in front of the net. He was big and he was physical and he was skilled and he was going to lead the flyer to all the flyers to all these Stanley Cups and everything was in line. But he just couldn't keep himself. He couldn't keep himself healthy. He kept getting injured, whether it be through concussions and all this kind of stuff. And he was the biggest fucking tease, man, because of his like if this guy can only stay healthy, if this guy can only stay on the ice. And look, no athlete is 100% after maybe one month into the season. You talk about hockey, I'm quite sure most hockey players aren't 100% eight, nine, ten games into the season. But it's like, damn, if Lindros could be like 80%, 75% for the majority of the season, I mean, this guy could be a fucking monster. And it's the same thing, but he kept on getting injured. The same thing with uh, Carson Wentz. It's like, man... Just the potential that this guy has for the uh, that what he could do for the Eagles franchise, and this guy keeps getting hurt, and he keeps getting hurt, and he keeps getting hurt. Again, I don't feel sorry for the guy, but uh, damn, it must be frustrating. Give it up for Philadelphia, though. The Eagles, Doug Peterson, they were playing with gum and duct tape. I mean, that franchise, the the, the, the squad that they were putting on the field on offensive defense. Let me tell you something, man. The A team couldn't have put the better, couldn't have uh, put together a better squad than what Doug Peterson had to do. I mean, you can get Murdoch and and Mr. T and the rest of those guys, and give those guys fifteen minutes to build a to build a shield to stop an asteroid from coming from the Earth, like the A team used to do back in the eighties. Let me tell you something, man. If the if you ask those guys to put together a a team, a football team that could compete with the Dallas Cowboys and that could win the NFC East to get themselves into the playoffs and be competitive against the Seattle Seahawks. Those guys couldn't have put together a better team than what uh, Doug Peterson did, especially um, the way he coached those guys. So we got these games coming this upcoming weekend. So let me see here. Saturday, Minnesota at San Francisco, Tennessee at Baltimore, then the divisional round on Sunday, Houston and Kansas City, Seattle versus Green Bay. You know what always makes me laugh? It's like, why Why is it that the night games are always at the coldest places? Why is it that, that Green Bay, the games of Green Bay, the majority of the games at Green Bay are always being played at night? It's almost like they want to enjoy that element of is negative. They're always trying to replicate the Ice Bowl or something like that from 1967 with the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers. For some reason, it's almost like they take a look at the 10-day forecast and it's like, what's it going to be at night in Green Bay, Wisconsin? What? Six degrees outside? Bingo. Put that game at that, at that time slot. I mean, if I'm a player, look, man, can we at least have a game where I'm not freezing my ass off? And I understand in the middle of the day, it's not going to be balmy in 72, but... I'm quite sure the weather is going to be just a little bit warmer than what it's going to be at night. So they always do that in these cold weather cities. Baltimore is going to be cold. I mean, you can't have the you can't have the game between Minnesota and San Francisco be the night game, and maybe put Tennessee and Baltimore in the in the uh, afternoon 
or the late afternoon or something. Damn, 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 damn. Not for me. I don't care. I want to be in a nice, I want to be in my wonderful, fantastic, awesome uh, townhome watching the game, eating some chips and drinking some root beer and kicking back, relaxing. So I don't give a damn. They play in Antarctica. But I'm just saying for those guys, it would be like, man, can we play in something a little bit warmer? Oh, well. Shall we, uh, shall we move on to some coaches news? I think so. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad that you could be with us. So some NFL coaching news, the Dallas Cowboys have finally found themselves a head coach. Former Green Bay Packers coach Mike McCarthy signed a five-year deal less than 24 hours after the Cowboys officially ended the coaching relationship with Jason Garrett, former Cincinnati Bengals head coach Marvin Lewis, was the only other candidate for the position. McCarthy had interviews with Cleveland, Carolina, and the New York Giants, so he was in high demand and itching to get back into the NFL. Remember, he spent 13 years with the Green Bay Packers, had a 125-77-2 record in those 13 seasons. He made the playoffs nine times. He won the Super Bowl in 2010, made the NFC Conference Championship game twice, and he won five division titles in six years between the years of 2011 and 2016. Hey, man, the guy brings some good credentials. I know people, I know Cowboy fans are sitting up there talking about, oh, you know, Mike McCarthy, because during the season, we were talking about Lincoln Riley, and we were talking about Urban Meyer, and we were talking about Matt Rule, and we were talking about these interesting out-the-box type of maybe Arizona Cardinals hiring Cliff Kingsbury type of hire for Jerry Jones. I mean, he's the guy he's going to bring in, and when everything is all said and done, he brings in a guy like Matt, Mike McCarthy. But the right choice was made by Jerry Jones. I have to say it right now, but I think Mike McCarthy is an excellent uh, head coach. I think that he can get the most out of the Cowboys. And I think as I head on to being 80 years old, I'm not going to be able to live forever. And I know that Steven's going to be taking over the squad when I'm dead and gone. But right now, I'm still living, and I want to get out here, and I want to win me some Super Bowl. So I'm have the most it utmost respect for Urban Meyer. I have the utmost respect for Lincoln Riley. I think he's done an outstanding job for the Oklahoma Sooners. But doggone it, I gotta win me a Super Bowl and fuck it, I'm gonna hire me the goddamn Mike McCarthy. You hear what I'm saying, boss? Shit. So I think that was uh, Jerry Jones giving his. That was my Jerry Jones impersonation, by the way. So I think. You know, McCarthy comes with credentials, man. He's one of four coaches to lead a single franchise to at least eight consecutive playoff appearances. I mean, or at least playoff, eight playoff appearances. The others are Tom Landry, Chuck Knoll, Bill Belichick. Hello. He's also has won more games with the Packers, except for uh, for every, you know, he's been, he's second career in terms of winning Super Bowls, excuse me, in terms of winning um, games for the Packers, except for Curly Lambeau which means that he has won more games than Vince Lombardi. Shut up. I'm not saying he's better than Vince Lombardi. What I'm saying is is that for all you who feel that it's underwhelming that Jerry Jones hired Mike McCarthy, Mike McCarthy is not a scrub. Now, near the end of his tenure with the Green Bay Packers, he got a little stale. He got a little old in terms of his 
offensive thinking. He was a guy that was calling the plays, and there was some friction between him and Aaron Rodgers, and there was a situation where maybe Aaron Rodgers was bailing him out of a lot of bad calls. So the Aaron Rodgers was the perfume that put a much nicer scent on the skunk of a smell that was Mike McCarthy's play calling. But you know what? Hey, man, 125, 77, 77 and 2, winning a Super Bowl and all those things. Come on, man. That's nothing to sneeze at. All right? And I understand what you're saying. Well, shit. I mean, who couldn't win games with Aaron? Who couldn't win football games when you have Aaron Rodgers at your quarterback? Well, let me ask you this question, okay? For those who sit there and talking about Mike McCarthy was riding the coattails of Aaron Rodgers, let me ask you something. How many Super Bowls has Sean Payton won without Drew Brees? How many Super Bowls has Mike Tomlin won without Ben Roethlisberger? Hmm? How many Super Bowls has Bill Belichick won without Tom Brady? How many Super Bowls did Chuck Knoll win without Terry Bradshaw? Okay, my my main point here is name me a name me a coach outside of Doug Peterson winning the Super Bowl with Nick Foles or maybe. Jim Harbaugh or John Harbaugh, one of the fucking Harbaugh brothers, Nate, uh, winning a Super Bowl with um, winning a Super Bowl with um, Nick Foles. Name me a coach over the last 10, 15 years who hasn't won a Super Bowl without a really great, without a really great uh, quarterback. So yeah, if you want to talk about you know Mike McCarthy riding the coattails of Aaron Rodgers, you could say that about a whole lot of coaches. Who won Super Bowl? So you can't you can't do that shit. So the question moving forward is, with McCarthy being the coach of the Dallas Cowboys, does he keep offensive coordinator Kellen Moore? First year, hey, you know Kellen Moore, first year as an offensive coordinator, he did well. Dallas finished sixth in the league in points, first in the league in yards per game. Dak Prescott had the best season in Dallas under um, Kellen Moore. He passed for forty nine hundred yards, thirty touchdowns. 11 interceptions, completed 65% of his passes. All of those were career highs. I mean, he was, I would say, I mean, he never got to the level of maybe a Lamar or a Russell or a Wilson, a Russell Wilson or a Lamar, a Lamar Jackson or a Deshaun Watson. But for a lot of the season, Dak Prescott was one of the better quarterbacks in the league. And that was mainly because of the play calling of Kellen Moore. Ezekiel Elliott rushed for over 1,300 yards. Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup each had 1,000 yards receiving. So, look, as I mentioned before, McCarthy did most of the play calling in Green Bay, I think, think until the 2015 season when he gave it up because he wanted to concentrate more on special teams and defense because those were being problematic for him. But moving forward, I thought McCarthy, he, he said that, you know, he took this year off and he wanted to upgrade and he wanted to kind of you know, get more knowledgeable in what teams are putting down and these new offenses and everything. So he educated himself. He took a year off and educated himself in doing that. You know who else did that? Mike Singletary, when he got fired from the San Francisco 49ers. He went all over the country and wanted to learn offenses and defenses. Interesting that Mike McCarthy got the job, another job opportunity, and Mike Singletary hasn't gotten an opportunity to become a coach. But I'll talk about that a little bit later. But, 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 but. I think Mike McCarthy is going to give Kellen Moore the opportunity to uh, be the offensive coordinator and do a thing. Now, on the defensive side, Mike Nolan, who was the New Orleans Saints linebacker coach this past off this past season, is going to be the new defensive coordinator. Most of the 
coordinators on defense for Dallas. The contracts are up, Rob Marinelli and others. So they are already taking a look to see what they're going to be doing about their future. So it's going to be a whole new look on defense for the Cowboys moving forward. But as I mentioned before, man, we heard stories and we heard rumors and innuendo that the Cowboys were considering, you know, Earl Lincoln Riley and Urban Meyer and Matt Rule. Good job for Jerry Jones to uh, be reasonable and get one of the better guys out there. And I think as a head coach, at least in the next couple of seasons, I think that they made a wise decision, the Dallas Cowboys, in hiring Mike McCarthy. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad that you could be with us. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Wait a minute, that was Washington Snyder Skins signing Ron Rivera, Daniel Snyder press conference where he went up and said, Happy Thanksgiving, everybody, on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day or something like that. Oh, well. Well, Washington signed Ron Rivera to a five-year deal. He coached for nine seasons at Carolina, had a record of 76-63-1, three NFC South titles, and a Super Bowl appearance in 2015. He was named Coach of the Year multiple times, first in 2013 and 2015. Interesting, because if you take a look at his coaching career in New, in uh, Carolina, very up and down and very uneven. For instance, the first five seasons of a head coach, when he was the head coach of Carolina, between 2011 and 2015, he went 47 and 32 and one. He won the AFC South three times in a row. He finished second in 2012, even though it was with a 7-9 record. He won the AFC South with a 7-8-1 record in 2014. So, yes, I know that he won the AFC South multiple times in a row, but yet and still, I mean, one of those was kind of iffy. They actually won. They they actually beat Carolina. Excuse me, Carolina actually beat Arizona. That year also, so that was interesting. But um, after the after going to the Super Bowl in 2015, he went 29 30, 29 and 31 in 0 and 1 in the playoffs. So you know, it's, I understand people are sitting there talking about, yeah, you know, he's you know he was the right choice for Washington and all that kind of stuff. But my thing is this: first of all, I'm I'm not. I'm not doubting or I'm not saying this was a horrible decision or something like that. I wish they would have maybe interviewed someone like a um, someone like a Marvin Lewis. The only reason why I said that because he's also had a lot of experience dealing with uh, inept owners, being that he had a whole lot of success dealing with Mike Brown and the Cincinnati Bengals. So he knows what he's getting into when he goes into a dysfunctional inept franchise like the uh, Washington professional football team is right now. But my thing that I might have to question just a little bit is, you know, he's going to have final say in all personnel decisions. And this is something that Ron Rivera hasn't done. Now, there's also been talk that maybe someone like a Rick Smith, who was the GM or president of football operations for the Houston Texans for a while and 
maybe someone like a Lewis Riddick who is uh, doing his stuff on ESPN. Maybe that might be a situation that they might turn to in terms of hiring somebody who can be the president of football operations to uh, help Rivera on like the salary cap and some other things and putting together a front office. But Ron Rivera is going to have the final say in terms of personnel decisions. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. And even if he does, I mean, didn't we try that before with Mike Shanahan? Didn't he, what he's supposed to have final say in all personnel decisions? And that lasted, I don't know, maybe about a year or two. And there was a quarterback coming out of Baylor at that time called Robert Griffin III. He was, he was named Robert Griffin III. And, Snyder and Bruce Allen, those guys were just like gaga goo goo over that guy. And Shanahan was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what we should go ahead and draft him. And Snyder was like, no, 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 we've got to draft him. And that kind of started the downfall, so to speak. That kind of started everything, all the drama that happened in the preceding years with uh, the relationship between RG3 and Daniel Snyder and Mike Shanahan and led to the... Snyder skins being three and thirteen, the final year of Mike Shanahan stay with the with the uh, football team. So I don't know. I don't know a how equipped Ron Rivera is. I don't know how experienced he is. I don't know how qualified he is to uh, be having that type of power for final say in all personnel decisions. And I don't know even if he does have that, how long will Dan Snyder sit on the sidelines? Say, for instance, if he wants a sexy wide receiver or he wants the next big free agent or the quarterback or whatever, or he wants a different plan for Dwayne Haskins, different than what Ron Rivera wants, because Rivera is not, he mentioned it before, he's not committed yet to Dwayne Haskins. And the fact that he let uh, the offensive coordinator go and hired his own coordinator, um, um, uh, Pat, what was the kid's the guy's name? It was... Uh, Oh, shoot, what was his name who was the uh, coordinator? Uh, Steve Turner, or uh, North, Turner's, North Turner's kid, something like that. But uh, now he's going to be the Scott Turner. Yeah, Scott Turner is going to be in charge of running the offense. Kevin O'Connell was the offensive coordinator last season. He had been told to go ahead and take a look at other jobs because his services will not be needed. So Dwayne Haskins is going to have to come, and he made a lot of progress from O'Connell after – Jay Gruden was fired, and he was allowed to go ahead and take the reins in terms of calling plays. But Rivera is going in a different direction, hiring Scott Turner, as I mentioned before. And I don't know, man. I have no idea. I mean, you have North Turner as the head coach. I mean, he was basically one who kept the offense simple. I mean, he made his bones in terms of North Turner as the offensive coordinator under Jimmy Johnson with the uh, Dallas Cowboys. And because of that, he parlayed that success as an offensive coordinator into a job with the Washington football team and then later on with the Oakland or Los Angeles, or I don't know what town they were in at the time, Raiders. And recently he was the offensive coordinator for the Carolina Panthers. So who knows what's going to be happening in that situation? Who knows now leading up to the draft? Are they going to be with Tua Tungabailoa declaring for the NFL draft the right thing to do? Are the Washington football, professional football team, are they going to be looking to maybe draft him, draft a cornerback? Are they going to do the right thing and draft Chase Young, the defensive defensive end out of Arizona, out of um, Ohio State? We don't know. We don't know. But moving forward, that's going to be an interesting look again. The only trepidation I have with this move is the fact that there was a couple of seasons 
in his nine seasons that um, Ron Rivera was a, you know, had a really good, did a really good job as a coach. But there were a lot of up and downs to his career in Carolina. And again, the opportunity for him to have final say in all personnel matters, I don't know. I don't know how adept he is at handling that responsibility, but we will see. I mean, it's better than what we had going forward with Bill Callahan and Jay Gruden before him. And really, the most important thing is the fact that Bruce Allen will no longer be part of the Washington organization. Thank you, Jesus. So at least, you know, that that was the most important thing. You know, that Bruce Allen's time in Washington as far as dealing with the professional football team is over. So... That is the most important thing. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just running down the rest of these coaching hires, New York hires Joe Judge. Pat Shermer was fired after the season. He went 9-23 and over two seasons. Don't know too much about him. I mean, as far as the background of Joe Judge, he was the um, wide receivers coach for Bill Belichick. So, again, some coordinators have done well when they left Belichick. Others have not. We will see. 38 years old. We will see. Carolina Panthers hire Baylor head coach Matt Rule. Took Baylor from 1-11 in 2017 to an 11-3 record this season. Also turned around the football program at Temple during his four seasons as their coach. Guy who was looking to get into the NFL. Dave Tepper, the owner, gave him a seven-year contract. Interesting. A college coach. Very interesting. And Cleveland is still looking for a coach. They've interviewed uh, Baltimore Ravens offensive coordinator Greg Roman, San Francisco 49ers defensive coordinator, and also Kansas City offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy. But I think that they're waiting and hoping and praying that um, that Josh McDaniel will be able to get that job. So one thing I want to end the program with is this. No coaches of color were hired. So again, we go through another cycle where no black head coaches are getting jobs in the NFL when you have candidates who should be seriously considered. I'm not saying give them jobs, but I'm saying should be highly considered when you're speaking about Jim Caldwell and Eric Bieniemy and Leslie Frazier and Byron Lefwich and Todd, uh, and Todd Bowles and Marvin Lewis. I mean, these guys should be getting jobs and they're not getting jobs and they're not getting Opportunities Now, a recent study conducted by the Global Sports Institute at Arizona State University, along with the Paul Robeson Research Center for Initiative for Innovative Academic and Athletic uh, Prowess at the University of Central Florida, uh, Florida College of Business, they came up with the study, right? And it showed that the primary path for a head coaching position in the NFL is through the role of being an offensive coordinator. So the data showed since 2009, Nearly 40% of head coaches hired were former offensive coordinators, and at least 77% of those offensive coordinators each season were white. And during the 2010, 11, and 16 hiring seasons, every uh, coach that was hired was an offensive coordinator and was white. So if you're thinking about it right now, you know, you take a look at Eric Bieniemy and Byron Leftwich of Tampa Bay. Those are the only black offensive coordinators, which is bullshit, man, because, you know, if you're a good coach, you're a fucking good coach, okay? Uh, Harbaugh, who was now the coach at Baltimore, he would have gotten, he was a special teams coach. Mike Tomlin was a defensive backs coach. 
Mike, um, uh, Bill Cower was a special teams coach. So the fact that now you have to have a background as far as being a, being a offensive coordinator is absolute fucking nonsense. You know, Bill Belichick is the greatest coach this era has ever seen. And he made his bones being a special teams coach first and then moving over to being a defensive coordinator. So, I mean, you know, he had the best quarterback in history and he's, his main MO was being a defensive coordinator. So this bullshit about you need to be an offensive coordinator to be a great head coach is absolute nonsense. Again, when you're the head coach of a football team, it's not about it's not about your acumen in terms of being a coach who's going to be doing X's and O's and all that kind of stuff. It's your communication with your team. That's what you're talking about. It doesn't matter in terms of how great you are as far as being an offensive or defensive guru. The main thing that you built, that was, that was Bill Belichick's main problem his first time he got a coach in Cleveland. It wasn't his, he was still a great head coach. That wasn't a problem with Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick's problem why he didn't succeed in Cleveland was he had no people skills. The players didn't like him. That was the reason why he didn't make it in Cleveland. It had nothing to do with the fact that he didn't know what he was talking about in terms of drawing up plays and drawing up schemes. You have to learn to be able to communicate, to be able to relate with the players, and not just with the star player or the star quarterback. So if you're a guy that can motivate, if you're a guy that can that can get these guys in the right position, then you should be a head coach. It doesn't matter if you're an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. Andy Reid was an offensive line coach. And you see what type of uh, football coach he's turned into. So don't give me this bullshit about you need to be an offensive coordinator. That's absolute nonsense. I'll tell you what, Jay-Z, it's time for you to earn your money. I mean, it, for me, this is what Jay-Z was brought to the NFL to do. Not to get Colin Kaepernick a job, it's to make sure that situations like this, that the Rooney rule is being thoroughly um, abided by in having black coaches get opportunity and having black executives and having uh, blacks, male or female, gay or straight, getting opportunities in high-ranking positions, not allowing a quarterback who knelt to get a job. Yes, Colin Kaepernick should have a job. Yes, it's ridiculous. It's embarrassing for the league that Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job. But Jay-Z coming into the league should be more than just getting Colin Kaepernick a job as a quarterback in the NFL. It should be about these situations in terms of why isn't Jim Caldwell considered being seriously considered as a as head coaching material. I mean, that's the perfect example right now. He's currently the Miami Dolphins assistant head coach and quarterback's coach. The Lions fired him after four seasons in which he had a regular season record of 26 and 28. The ex-Patriots defensive coordinator, Matt Patricia, followed Caldwell. Through two seasons, he's 9-22-1. and one. This season, he was 3-12-1, and one, and he's still coming back for a third job. Do you think a coach, do you think a black coach that has a 9-22-1 record would be coming back for a third season outside of maybe Hugh Jackson? No, Steve Wilkes was the coach for the Arizona Cardinals. He was fired after one season of not having a of not having a, a good season. Todd Bowles, when working with the Jets, he had nothing to work with and still got a lot out of them, and they let him go to bring in Adam Gates. How, how has he been doing so far? It's an absolute joke. Absolute joke. The Caldwell designed the offense that helped the 2012 Baltimore Ravens win the Super Bowl. I mean, he was the guy that led the Colts to a 24-8 record his first two seasons after taking over from, from uh, Tony Dungy in 2009 and 2010 and led them to the Super Bowl. It could have won it if Peyton Manning didn't throw an interception to uh, ice the game for the, ice the, game for the uh, Saints. 
Again, he was let go after the 2011 season in which Peyton Manning's injury left the team with Curtis Painter, Dan Orlowski, and Kerry Collins as his quarterback. So please, g- give me a break. If this man still can't find a job, you're having Jim Swar- uh, Schwartz, the defensive coordinator for the Philadelphia Eagles, they have a better, he has a better opportunity than getting a job or being interviewed than Jim Caldwell. Absolutely ridiculous. Again, Jay-Z, you definitely need to earn your money. It's about time to start earning your money. Forget about getting Colin Kaepernick a job in the NFL. Forget about, you know, what type of what type of entertainment needs to be set for the Super Bowl. Do something for real, like you said that you were going to do, and see about, again, it's not about getting Colin Kaepernick a job in the NFL. It's about putting black head coaches into positions to be hired as head coaches. It's about getting GMs and presidents of football operations and other high-ranking jobs, giving black uh, blacks and other minorities the opportunity to apply for those positions and have a true, sincere shot at getting those opportunities. But what can you do? I mean, you can't make an owner who doesn't want a black guy in, in those positions. You can't make a billionaire bend to your, bend to your wants and to your needs. So... It is what it is. You can't have a GM bend into the wants of um, your need, your wants and needs. But as Adam Schefter said very well, heading into the NF, what the hundred years of the NFL, really nothing has changed when you talk about opportunities giving given to blacks in terms of being NFL head coaches on a consistent basis. All right, I am done. I am out of here. I want to thank you very much for listening to the program. This has been Wendell's World in Sports. I am still Wendell Wallace, happy, healthy, still glad to be living and hoping to live a lot more. And uh, yeah, we're done. Music. Music.